come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 36 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here, recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, I have Journey Through the Aughts, number 11, where I will have a 2020 release of Legend of the Muse, or it also goes by the alternate title of Just Muse. And then the 1940s film is the serial of Drums of Fu Manchu, and then for the mini-reviews, I have The Return of the Living Dead, From Hell, Itchy the Killer, Brotherhood of the Wolf, and Baghead. Now, majority of these movies that are going to be in the mini-reviews are part of the summer challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs as they are doing the 2000s. As part of the People's Council, I have 2001 and 2008, so I'm going to finish up 2001 over there, as well as I'm going to do 2008 is where I'm going into after that with the last movie of the mini reviews i'll get into a little bit more of that over there aside from that it's been a pretty good week for me to watch movies because i've watched all the ones that i have here as well as some other ones that are not in the genre now what i'm going to go ahead and do is i'm not going to waste any time here so i'm going to kick you over first to a musical break before i get into those mini reviews enjoy
first up, I have for this week's mini reviews, The Return of the Living Dead. This came out in 1985. This was directed by Dan O'Bannon. It came from a story that was brought by Rudy Ricci, John A. Russo, and Russell Striner. And the screenplay is actually written by Dan O'Bannon. This stars Clue Gallagher, James Karen, and Don Kelfa. This is a comedy horror sci-fi film from the United States. It's currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being when two bumbling employees at a medical supply warehouse accidentally release a deadly gas into the air. The vapors cause the, the dead to rise again as zombies. Now, this is a film that I grew up on. I probably watched it way too young, but regardless, I've loved it, and I've seen it countless times over the years. Now, surprisingly, it was close to a decade since the last time I had seen it, where I changed that when my local theater was showing this as part of, the, as part of their Horror 101 series. So I got to see it on the big screen last year, and then I gave it another viewing for my birthday, which was on Sunday, you know, 7-5, since it is during the, you know, July 4th weekend that this movie takes place, and when my birthday is, so I watched it with Jamie, as she agreed to check it out because of it being my birthday. Now, this is an interesting movie, as the synopsis lets off, where we have two kind of groups of people here, is that we have Freddy, who is Tom Matthews, who is a kind of punk kid, who is now working at this medical warehouse that is owned by Bert, who is Gulliger, and then he's being shown around by Frank, who is James Karen, and then he's trying to say that the events of Night of the Living Dead really did happen, and that those bodies from what happened there are in canisters in the basement, and then all the while, Freddy's friends are partying at a nearby cemetery when they're waiting for him to get out. Now, over there is his girlfriend, who is Tina, portrayed by Beverly Randolph. And then it is Scuzz, who is Brian Peck, recommends they go by, they go to that cemetery to party. There's also Casey, who is Jewel Shepard. Spider, who is the great Miguel A. Nunez Jr. Trash, the lovely Linnea Quigley. There's Chuck, who is John Philbin. And then we also have Suicide, who is Mark Venaturini. Now, they decide that the best way to get rid of a body that is reanimated by this chemical is to burn it at the mortuary nearby, where Ernie, who runs the place, portrayed by Kelfka, does that, but then it creates smoke that rains down on the Resurrection Cemetery with water and brings some corpses back to life. Now, most of you probably have seen this, as this movie's a classic, so I'm probably just kind of regurgitating information you already knew. But this is just a great movie in my opinion. And I think part of it's probably nostalgia, but like I think a lot of it is legitimately really good here. Now, I'm a big fan of the Romero Living Dead series, and I think that this is an interesting comedic approach to parody those movies here. But I also think what really works well for this is that they're doing a great blend of comedy and horror where I don't think the horror is diminished by the comedy, and I think the comedy is there to help alleviate some of the tension at times, and it just works so well in my opinion. The movie is paced in an amazing way where it never gets boring, and I think that we move through everything at a good clip. I thought the acting across the board is just amazing. I think Bert is one of those guys that he's a great jerk in this movie where he is really worried about his business and not so much about the people that it could be affecting, but I just think he's a solid hero that he kind of becomes. I think the banter between Frank and Freddy is wonderful. I think the punks are all pretty good here as well. I actually developed my first crush on anybody here with trash, and I mean, you can tell from the scene that she gets naked in is probably a big part of that. I think the effects are pretty good across the board. There are some that don't necessarily hold up, but I like that they went practical there. The soundtrack here is amazing. 
I'm actually a big fan and have on playlist uh, tonight we'll make love until we die as well as party time and I think some of the other non like actual songs in it are creepy and help fit this movie very well so I'm not gonna keep gushing about this movie I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's listening to this who thinks that this is just a great movie I think what they do here is just wonderful and this is kind of what I think most parody horror films try to want to be and I think what they really don't do is they don't give us enough, enough horror like this movie does. So I, if you couldn't tell from this, had to come in. Even my slight issues that I have with the movie are just pretty much nitpicking because I've seen it so much and I can kind of poke fun or poke at things that don't necessarily need to be. But my rating here is a 10 out of 10. And for my second review of this week is going to be From Hell from 2001. This was directed by the Hughes brothers who are Albert and Alan. This is from the screenplay by Terry Hayes and Rafael Iglesias. And this is from the graphic novel that was co-written between Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. This stars Johnny Depp, Heather Graham, and Ian Holm. This is a horror mystery thriller with a co-production from the United States, Czech Republic, and the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, in Victoria-era London, a troubled, clairvoyant police detective investigates the murders of Jack the Ripper. Now, this is a movie that I remember when it came out, but at the time, I wasn't the biggest fan of Johnny Depp. And I think a lot of that was just trying to be different on my end. But I avoided it for a while until I was working at Family Video, and co-workers told me that I needed to check this out. Our disc in the store was damaged, so they thought that they had fixed it, so I took it home to test it, and it still didn't work. So it's been until now that I've actually seen this movie. Jamie had never seen it either, and she's a big Depp fan, so we decided we were going to, you know, check this out together. And then I also have to thank Duncan over on the podcast Under the Stairs, as this was another one that is part of the year that I had, one of the years that I had for the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. And just kind of even a little bit more information here is that we are in London in the year 1888. We're following a group of prostitutes who are Mary Kelly, who is Graham. There's Dark Annie Chapman, who is Katrina Cartilage. There's Liz Stride, who is Susan Lynch, Kate Eddowes, who is Leslie Sharp, Polly Nichols, who is Annabelle Apsian, and then there's Martha Tambrum, who is Samantha Spiro. Now, their friend Ann Crook, who is also a prostitute, who is portrayed by Joanna Page, has a newborn baby, and she wants to go see her husband, who is Albert Stickert, who is Mark Dexter, but then while they're having sex together, some of the secret police, who is led by... Benjamin Kidney, who is Terrence Harvey, take her into custody as well as they take him out. And then we realize that there is a much bigger plot here as these prostitutes start to be picked off. And there is a killer known as Jack the Ripper, of course. And this ends up involving Inspector Frederick Aberline, who is Depp, as he starts to investigate this. But we see that he's got his own troubles as he is found in an opium den by Sergeant Peter Godley who is Robbie Coltrane, and he ends up, as he investigates this, comes into a plot that could cause major scandal in the United Kingdom, and this involves him encountering Sir William Gull, who is Ian Holm, who is a physician to the monarch, Dr. Farrell, who is Paul Reese, who is a young promising surgeon that has just been accepted into the Freemasons, and then there's also the true identity of Albert, now, this is kind of a hard movie to talk about, even in this mini fashion, just because there's so many moving parts to it. Now, I have read the graphic novel, and 
I think for the most part, they do an excellent job at adapting it from that book to the screen. And I think a lot of that is the fact that Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell did a really good job at <clears throat> doing the research behind the scenes of everything. And a lot of the kills and everything are pretty close to what actually happened. And I know there's one scene near the end of this movie that is taken right from the graphic novel that I thought was pretty impressive to bring that to life on the screen for one thing. But I could also see a lot of these things actually happen in this movie. It's not surprising that somebody like Burke and Hare could actually have a living like they did. And I could also believe that there's a cover-up by the police as well. Now, I'm not necessarily sure if the story behind everything here is real. But I could see that the Freemasons, as they have their roots in the Knights Templar, could do some of the things that we get here. And it's pretty scary. And not only that, but I mean, these women are forced into prostitution just by how hard their life is and needing to make ends meet. So I could definitely see something like that happen. I think that the acting is really good across the board. I think that Depp plays this role very well with his charismatic nature, and he's quirky enough for me to believe that he could be addicted to opium, like he is. On top of that, I think Graham is fine as the prostitute that she is. She puts in a fine performance there. Ian Holm is really good, along with Coltrane. We have Jason Fleming, who is the coachman of Netley. And then the rest of the cast, in my opinion, is solid and round this out. Something that's also interesting about this movie are the effects, is that a lot of the deaths are done off screen, which is kind of surprising, but we do get some pretty brutal scenes. I know there's one point where we get to see a throat cut, and I thought that looked really well. But a lot of this, though, makes you play with your imagination to kind of envision what really happens here. And we do get to see some of the aftermaths of some of the deaths, which also works as well. But I would say that the cinematography is really well in bringing this Victorian London to life. It just looks so dirty and grimy, and seeing how these people live is another thing. I just think that this is a movie that overall is just really well done. I do think there's some slight flaws with... It is hard to figure out who some of the characters are, but I still think that the hour, two-hour runtime that we get is good. Kind of seeing these Jack the Ripper killings and how close to reality that they actually were as actual police file was referenced in how they kind of brought some of this stuff to life and that's even in the novel as well i just think that they really did a really good job in all of that in my opinion and i came in with an eight out of ten on this movie and then i have this week itchy the killer from 2001 this is directed by Tikashi Mike. it is written by sakichi sato and comes from the manga by hideo yamamoto this stars tadanobu asano noah homori and Shinya Tsukamoto. This is an action comedy crime drama horror thriller from Japan. This is sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being as sadomasochistic Yakuza enforcer Kakihara searches for his missing boss, he comes across Ichi, a repressed psychotic killer who may be able to inflict levels of pain that Kakihara has only dreamed of achieving. Now, this is a film that I heard about long before I ever saw it. I wasn't sure what it was all about, and I know the first time that I did, it was at the Gateway Film Center on the big screen. It wasn't until seeing it that I realized that the main character I kept seeing isn't even the title character. Now, this is just an odd film for sure, and I'm updating, as this is my second time seeing this, as part of the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s that I'm doing over on the podcast Under the Stairs as a member of the People's Council, like I said. And so I have to thank Duncan, who's the host over there, for giving me the chance to see this again. Now, as this was saying, there's a Yakuza boss by the name of Anjo, and he ends up going missing. 
and from what we learn is that there's a cleanup crew that hides the evidence but he supposedly stole three million yen but Kakihara isn't so sure that he actually ran away like they think he did now the common thought is that he stole a bunch of money ran away with a girl that he was with but there's also this subplot that Kakihara being a sadomasochist likes the way that his boss beats the heck out of him so he's really trying to find him for that but I mean he's also his boss so he is showing his loyalty there and this is kind of an interesting thing that I wanted to delve into here is that despite him being a being a criminal and a sadomasochist that is torturing people he does seem to have his own kind of honor system that he goes by and I almost kind of see him as like a type of twisted samurai that really just wants to meet his match in battle and wants to find somebody who can inflict the pain upon him that he needs then on the other side of the coin we have Ichi who is a repressed killer but we see that he's being manipulated into doing what he does by a man named Jaji who is feeding him stories and his demented mind is processing this as memories now we do get to learn that Jaji as well as the rest of his crew are outcasts from the gang that Anju is the leader of but then getting back to Ichi here is that he's also a sex a sexual deviant and some of his memories seem to be twisting things but he also has the inability to climax in a normal way now I love both him and Kakihara being kind of these anti-heroes who have good aspects to them where you kind of feel sorry at times but they're also bad and something I also left off here is that Kakihara's character has a kind of take on the, the Glasgow smile and he has these little rings that hold him into place but we get to see that if he doesn't have them in there he can actually open his mouth much larger and it's kind of a creepy little thing but since I already started talking about that there are some really good effects in this movie that I was actually kind of blown away the torture scenes look really good in this movie and they had me cringing and I love that but some of these effects are really bad as some of it is done by CGI that just doesn't hold up for me and doesn't look the greatest but I will say that the cinematography is very well done from the director Takashi Miike now, something I want to swing back to would be the acting, which I thought was really good. I thought Asano and his performance was great, and I love the expressions that he makes and just some of the things that he says. Omori, I also really like in his role. He does such well at being this confused character who's so demented, and it just makes complete sense at the reveal about him. And he does so well at being this broken character that despite what he's doing, I still feel sorry for him. Now, there's also some really good acting from... Tsukomoto. I also like Sabu, who is a former cop who has been disgraced for losing his gun, so he was kicked off the force, and now he's trying to prove himself with the Yakuza and just raise his kid. The problem with him there is his honor doesn't translate so well to these criminals. If I do have any drawbacks, I do think the movie runs a little bit too long. There's a little bit too much filler in there for me, and I kind of just lose interest, but it does bounce back for the climax. Uh, as for the soundtrack, I thought that was really good. I think that the theme song that they play throughout, I dug that. It's not going to be one of my favorites that I'll always listen to, but I definitely think that it has some that if I hear it, I you know, will enjoy it. I think it does fit well for what the movie's going for. But that's all I really wanted to delve into for this movie. I find this to be kind of an interesting little film that has some odd aspects to it and some of the violence and whatnot that they're blending well of like the horror genre with the crime type thing there. But I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then up next, I have Brotherhood of the Wolf. This is directed by Christoph Gans. This comes from the original scenario by Stephanie Cable, and she also adapted this along with Christoph Gans. This stars Samuel La Bihan, Mark Damasco, and Jeremy 
Rainier. This is an action-adventure drama horror thriller from France. This is sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being in 18th century France, La Chevalier de Fronsac and his Native American friend Mani are sent to the Gevade province at the king's behest to investigate the killings of hundreds by a mysterious beast. Now, this is a film that I never heard of until I was working my way through the Fangoria Top 300 horror films. I then watched it a second time as I didn't do a written review of it that first time around, so I gave it another viewing. And now I've given it a third watch as this is the last movie I needed to see for 2001 as part of the People's Council for the Summer Challenge Series for the 2000s over on the podcast Under the Stairs, which I keep bringing up. Thank you, Duncan, for picking me once again. Now, this is an interesting movie is that this is somewhat based in reality. Now, the movie has us that there's a man writing a journal. Now, this is Thomas de Epche, who is, as an older version, is Jacques Perrin. Now, he's detailing the events of something that happened to him as the French Revolution is looming outside of his residence. And then we go into the past where we have two men that come to, as I said, this province who are Gregor de Fransoc, who is our main character of Samuel La Bihan. And then we also have his Native American helper, as well as he pretty much considers him a brother, as they met during the French and Indian War named Manny, who is Da Coscos. I'm not really sure how to say that, so I do apologize to him, even though he'll probably never hear this, but I digress. Now, they come to this smaller town where we have the younger Marquis of Thomas de Epcher, who is Rainier in this one, as, you know, the younger version. And then his father, who is the official Marquis, who is portrayed by Hans Meyer. Now, these two men come to meet with the people that are in charge of this smaller village, as there has been this beast that has been killing them, and it's thought to be a wolf. Now, the reason that Friend Sock is coming here is that he's a naturalist and is officially commissioned by the King Louis XV, I believe, at this time. He's been searching wolves in the new france so they want to see if he can kind of help to lead his expertise to what is going on here and some of the people i need to point out is that we have jean francois who is portrayed by the amazing vincent castle and then his sister who is marianne who is emily d Kewen. now as the more that they start to research this, Frensock believes that this is not actually a wolf, or if it is, it's a very large one. But we end up seeing that this is a creature that is covered in metal, like almost armor, and that there might be a much deeper plot that is going on here. And the Captain Duhamel is not actually getting the job done, so the King sends another man, and we see that there's a bigger plot going on under this. And then we also have that Frensock, as he is pursuing Marianne, to get some sexual release, starts to visit a brothel where he meets Sylvia, who is Monica Bellucci. Now, this is an interesting film, is that it is based in reality. Is that we do actually have that there was a beast, or what they kind of believe might be a series of beasts, that were attacking people in this province back in the 1700s. But they actually believe that it might have been a couple different like wolf-type creatures that were doing it, not just one. Now, we see here, though, that there, as I said, much different, bigger plot going on. And that the name of the film actually plays into stuff that is going on underneath of all this. And there's also something I really enjoy is that we have the religious undertones as well. One of the people that is in the town is Sardis, who is very religious. And they also believe that there could be a spy in the, from the Vatican who's there to make sure that's not a demon causing these things. 
And I also find it interesting is that there almost could be a supernatural thing going on here. But as the movie goes on, we see that there's actually a real animal, but that it might be somewhat of a trained beast that is causing these things. But I will say that this movie does run a bit long for my liking. It just kind of drags at different points, so I do have issues there. And I'm not a big fan that the creature in this thing is done with CGI, so it doesn't look the greatest. I think the acting is really good across the board. I thought BN was good. Damascus is, I thought, really good, even though it's kind of awkward that he is Asian and does martial arts, but he's supposed to be Native American in this. I do like the action set pieces we get from that, but it is a little bit out of place. And this movie does also have racism in it, but I'm okay with it, as this is supposed to be the 1770s. So I do like that it is kind of more in the time as they're making insults toward Native Americans as well as black people, but they don't realize they're being that way. And I mean, that was something that was really happening all that time ago. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Castle in this film, as the acting outside of that was really good. And this is a movie that, after this third watch here, my rating has kind of gone up where I came up from a 7, where I'm now sitting on an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And the last film that I'm going to cover for this week is Baghead from 2008. This is directed by the Duplass brothers of Jay and Mark, who also co-wrote this together. And then we also have the creator of the short film that we see briefly in the movie of We Are Naked that was written by John E. Bryant. This stars Ross Partridge, Steve Zissis, and Greta Gerwig. This is a comedy, drama, horror, romance film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being four actors go to a cabin in the woods for the weekend to write a movie script. They talk about a relationship movie or a paper bag over the head movie. It starts with an anonymous baghead and slowly escalates. Now this is a movie that I'm going to be perfectly honest, I had never heard of. It came up on the list of movies for 2008 over on the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. This is the other year that I was assigned for the People's Council. So I would have seen it eventually, even if I hadn't been selected for the People's Council. But when I learned that it was from the Duplass Brothers, I was intrigued because I'm a fan of the League television show. So that was one of those things where I kind of wanted to see some of their other works. As I've seen the movies of Creep and Creep 2, so I was just wondering what this one would end up being. Now, just to kind of give a little bit more background information is that we start at the movie that we have the writing credits for of We Are Naked, where we have our four group of people who are Chad, who is Zissus, and then we have Matt, who is Partridge, and then there's also Michelle, who is Gerwig, who Chad is interested in her, and then we also have Matt's ex-girlfriend is with him of Catherine, who is Elise Muller. Now, we have some interesting dynamics here is that Michelle looks at Chad as a friend, even though he looks at her as something more. Now, Matt feels the same about Catherine, but she believes they'll end up together regardless. Then at the end of the movie that they are watching, they have a Q&A where the director, who is uh, Jet Garner, who is playing himself. And then we learn about an after party where they try to get in, but everybody does by pretending they're on their cell phone except for Matt because he can't find his phone. He tries to do it with his wallet and doesn't get in. And then it is at this, they end up all going to a bar because of him not getting in. And they end up deciding that they're going to go out to a cabin that one of their families owns for the weekend, try to see if they can come up with a screenplay that they can all star in, and then try to make a movie because Jet just kind of pretty much says, like, that's what he does. He just 
goes at it and gets after it. But I'm not going to lie. About 20 minutes into this movie, I wasn't sure if this is going to be horror or not. So I had to look up on the IMDb to confirm that it was. As the movie progresses, it's not one of those movies that I would necessarily say is scary in the general sense. But it also has some pretty creepy things that are going on as the movie progresses. As we're not sure if there is somebody stalking them or not. Now what impressed me most about this is it's made with a shoestring buzz budget. I did a bit of research to find out the movie was made for around 50k. And it appears that these actors are friends of some sort. So that way they kind of, I'm assuming, worked for cheap because they really hadn't done a whole lot as of yet. So it's kind of one of those cool things that actually probably my favorite part of the movie is that meta aspect that they're going for. I've talked about how it's a low budget. And then in the movie, Matt, I believe, asked Jet at the Q&A for the screening about his budget there. It really feels like a movie that they're probably close to the story of how the movie is actually made is probably how the movie was actually made. So I do like that idea. And this is really just showing that just do it attitude where they finally stop talking about something and actually go out and make a movie. Now it isn't on the scale for me, but I've actually had similar feelings, which is how I started my blog and this podcast where I finally just said that I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. And they actually just go out for it. And it's, you know, kind of a good feeling. And it's interesting for me to see this play out on a bigger scale. I would say that the acting is pretty solid across the board. Sissus is a guy that he has more going on for him than he realizes, but much like me, he deals with low self-esteem. Matt points this out, and I think that he's a good friend there, and he's trying to build him up and trying to get him to you know see that he is much better than what he actually thinks about himself. Now, I do think that Matt is kind of a character that I think is borderline on being a jerk, but I can see that in this that Matt is a good guy and much like I've seen, like I said, with my friends in the past, but he really does care about Chad as well as his ex, Catherine. Even though he doesn't want to hurt anybody, he does sometimes have to be you know, firm in his beliefs. And it's also fun to see Greta Gerwig in this movie. She's quite quir quirky and it just fits for her character. Plus we do get to see her topless, which I'm not mad about. And I do think it's interesting because she's gone on to have such success that she has as a filmmaker herself. So it's cool to kind of see her humble beginnings. And then Muller comes off as a bitch, and I hate to say it, but she does play it so well. And it fits the character for what was needed. Outside of that, I really don't have anything else that I really necessarily wanted to delve into with this movie. It's just kind of an interesting little film to see here and kind of how everything plays out with it. So I enjoyed it, and I came in with a 7.5 out of 10 here. Now, that's what all I had to do for these mini-reviews here, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my first featured review. Every true artist has someone calling out to him, begging to be discovered. Your muse. Find her. real. Can you tell me more about the Lananshi? As legend goes, they tend to seek out artists. And you accomplish these amazing things together. She will love you, inspire you, and protect you. Maria. Adam. That she will only attack someone that might take her, her lover. Hello? 
She's not here. She's real. I can't let anyone get close to me. <gasps> first featured review on this episode it's going to be muse from 2017 and it also goes by the alternate title of legend of the muse this was written and directed by john burr the stars riley egan l evans and kate mancy this is a drama fantasy horror romance sci-fi thriller that was a mouthful and this comes from the united states it is currently sitting on a 5.1 on imdb and a 2.9 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a painter's life is forever changed when a mythical and deadly spirit from Celtic lore, a Liana C, becomes his muse and lover. Now this is a movie that I had the pleasure of seeing when the film company behind it reached out to ask if I'd be interested in doing a review as a screener, which since I enjoy helping out more independent films, I agree, and they hooked me up. Now we start out with two guys that have a flat tire in their truck. They're stranded in the middle of nowhere. One of them goes into the woods as he hears something. It is there that he encounters an, emas an emancipated man with a harmonica. We then cut to a dream sequence where we see a woman's eyes and we get a flash of her. And this is our main character of Adam, who is portrayed by Riley Egan. He is a struggling painter who lives in a studio apartment. He has a crush on his neighbor, but he can see her from across the way through the window. And her name is Maria and she is Mansi. Now he is lacking in confidence though and we get to see this quite a bit throughout the movie and something I liked here is that we get a bit more of this though not necessarily just through things he says but mostly through his facial reactions to when things happen and then we get a scene of this as well where the landlord informs him that his rent has gone up by $50 and he needs that money now and we can see that he's probably struggling with money situation but his landlord is Lance who is Phil Abrams and we get an interesting duality here though as there's a new resident of Hector who is portrayed by Max Decker and he actually bullies Lance and this allows Adam to get away without giving him the money at that point. Now Adam goes up to the roof where Hector gives him a proposition to help inspire him stating that you can't just be up on this rooftop if you want to be you know a better artist than what he is and he believes that he needs to go out there to do something to get some life experiences. And there's an interesting aspect here where Hector shows us a tattoo on his forearm of a tree. And in Adam's sketch pad, he actually drew the same exact tree. And they haven't even met before this really outside of that thing that happened just down in the lobby. Now Hector tells Adam that he can make some money if he drives him that night and it'll just take a couple hours of his time. Adam declines at this point though. But as he heads back to his room, he bumps into Maria. And she sees his sketch pad and notices a drawing of her. She invites him to a local gallery where a showing is happening that night. Now he agrees to come partly for her as well as it's a networking opportunity. They don't come out and say that, but I mean, that's just kind of the feeling I get. It is there that we get to meet Maria's boyfriend who is Jason Block, portrayed by Lou Ferrigno Jr. It is his showing and he's quite arrogant about it. Now this encounter doesn't help Adam's self-esteem. It isn't all bad though, as he does bump into Valerie, who is Jenny Fawn. She's the owner, and then we can see that she sees something in him, but she just tells him that he needs to find his muse, and he makes a comment about that's what he's been searching for as well. Now he goes home, and that night he sees Maria and Jason hooking up through the window. This pushes Adam to seek out Hector about his proposition. Now they drive to the middle of nowhere, and it turns out that Hector is a drug dealer. 
and Adam is is being his driver that night. Now, while he's waiting, he goes out into the woods when he was told to stay in the car. He hears something, but then there's yelling that draws him back as the deal goes bad and they try to flee. They don't get far when Adam sees the woman from his dreams. He ends up spinning out his car and this freaks Hector out. Now, they end up getting out and end up seeing her. And what ends up happening, though, is that Hector shoots at her and he thinks he kills her. And then we end up going back again once more to Adam's apartment where he wakes up from a dream. And we also see there's a new painting in his room of the woman that he saw the night before. This woman also appears in his room. Hector ends up seeing her through the window because of the reasoning being that she saw his face and she knows everything that's gone down. And it turns out, though, she's not just an ordinary woman, though. Valerie calls her what was in the synopsis as a Liana C, which is pretty much their version of a muse. But the question is, though, is she real or is she just something in Adam's head that is causing him to be, you know, a much different person? Because we see from here that he actually becomes a pretty good artist and ends up getting a gallery showing. But we also see that when people try to stop him, this woman comes to help and to prevent things from happening to him. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap, as I think that gives the gist of what we're working with here. Now, to go back to what I said earlier, when I saw the title, I was excited as I love mythology. From my understanding, there are muses, I believe, in Greek and probably Roman mythology. It wasn't until watching this movie that I learned that they're also in Celtic history with that different name. I shouldn't be surprised, as there are a lot of crossover between mythologies that it's just variations of the same story. It just kind of tells how they give the reasoning of why things happen as they do. Now, one of my favorite characters here, though, becomes Valerie, because she is that person who progresses the things with the information that she knows from her childhood, and I'm always a big fan of that character. Now, my first real introduction to what a muse was was in the Albert Brooks film, The Muse, starring Sharon Stone. I then learned more about them in class, and me just doing my own research, because as I said, I'm a bit of a nerd at times. I like what they do with her here, though, and expanding more to the Celtic history of them. The Lyannon Sea will kill anyone who tries to come between her and the one that she has latched onto. Now, I make that sound bad, but that's not the case. It's a beautiful woman, so there's a perk. Adam or any other artist that is drawn to her, Entity helps them to make their best work of their lives, but they end up living short lifespans because of it, which is kind of an interesting thing if you think about it, because a lot of artists don't tend to live till old age, and it almost makes it seem like why there's some of them that have such a like spree where all their stuff that they make is great, and it almost is correlating that this is the reason that they get latched on to a muse like this. Now, they also get to have sex with her, which as a male, good for them, especially the actress in this movie, as we get to see her nude quite a bit, which, thank you movie. This does play some interesting things with those that try to get in her way or his way in the movie. Now, something else I found interesting is that we get a look at the art community here. Now, clearly, if you follow me, you know I love, I love film. And I do have some pretentious tastes at times. The painting community from everything that I've seen in this movie isn't for me. I'd say this is up there with like Velvet Buzzsaw in presenting how they act and how they can have that like pretentious feel to them. And since we're talking about the community, I'll shift over to the acting. I think they did a really good job in the performances across the board. I'm really impressed with Egan and his ability to convey a lot with body language and facial expressions. He just looks defeated with no self-confidence early on until he meets the Liana and C. And then from there, it is such a change. And I was also impressed with Evans in the role that she has as well. Now, as I already said, she's new quite a bit, and I'm thankful for that she was willing to do that. She doesn't have any lines, though. So again, everything she does is through facial and body expressions. 
Mansi is also quite attractive. My only issue with her is that she's coming on to Adam from the beginning. Now we see that her boyfriend is a jerk, so I guess it's possible that she doesn't really necessarily want to be alone and see something in him and that he could treat her better. It just feels a bit off to me. But I do think, though, that Loki, Fawn, really steals the show as the best actress and the best character for what she does for Adam in progressing the mythology. Decker, Ferrigno, Abrams, and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed as well. I should also give props to Abrams for being such a sleazy, like, landlord type guy. He does it so well. And I don't really want to say that he's that type of person in real life, but his performance is pretty funny. And then really the last thing I want to cover here would be the effects and how things are edited together. Most of the deaths that we get are off screen, which is fine. I think that actually plays up well to being, is this in his head or is this entity real? And I think also part of that is it'd be the same thing being repeated over and over again. The blood looks good though. We do get to see some of the people stabbed with a painting tool, which works. It is a bit unbelievable that what Adam does with the bodies is he just chops them up and then throws them into this like crawl space in his room. You'd think that would start to stink and that people would notice, but I digress. And if I do have any issues, it would be that there are too many dream sequences. That's a trope that I think is played out in my opinion. I don't mind that they're using it to bring these two characters together, but I think as of that, the editing is fine. It's just, that's where my issue would come from if I had anything. So now with that said, I came in not sure what to expect with this movie and ended up really enjoying it. I thought that this was a solid little premise that is grounded in mythology and what they do actually with it works. There's not a lot in the way of story, but I think a lot of that, what works here is the acting. I think that Egan, Evans, and Fawn are all good. The rest of the cast are solid in their support. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't really need them, and the soundtrack fits for what was needed. It's just lacking in some aspects to be like really good in my opinion, but with that said, I still think this is above average movie for sure, and I would recommend this actually. I don't necessarily think for everybody. I think more hardcore horror fans that might not be the biggest fan. I would say those that are more like into artsy films or those that are into, you know, I guess ones that are a little bit lighter on the horror might enjoy this a little bit more in my opinion. So my rating came in here with a 7 out of 10. And then before I ended this, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as kind of everything that I've laid out there, there's not really a whole lot to delve into outside of doing a step-by-step -step review, which I'm not going to do here. And the only really trivia that I had is the actress Elle Evans is married to Matt Bellany, singer-frontman for the band Muse, which is kind of interesting that she stars in this movie. But that's all I really wanted to delve into for this movie. What I'm going to go ahead and do next is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review. information I require of you is such a small matter, and the price to you so great. I am certain you will see the wisdom of changing your decision.
didn't exaggerate when he said Howard is eccentric. I've had some dealings with him. Eccentric or not, we've got to get the Kardak stone before Fu Manchu learns about it. I've arranged everything, Alan, everything. Just as you suggested when you telephoned from the police station. I knew you would, Professor Anderson. Are you ready, Lieutenant? Ready, willing, and able, Mr. Parker. Well, what are we waiting for? Come with me. It's in my office. You go out and keep the boys out of sight. I'll stay here with Tommy. If nothing happens, we trail Parker, understand? second featured review of this episode is going to be Drums of Fu Manchu. This came out in 1940. This was co-directed between John English and William Whitney. This is from the book by Sax Romer and the original screenplay, and there's a lot of people that were working on this together, of Franklin Adrian, Morgan Cox, Ronald Davidson, Norman S. Hall, Barney A. Sarecki, and Sol Shore. This stars Henry Brandon, William Royal, and Robert Kellard. This is an action-adventure crime drama film from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb. Nice. And a probably around a three stars on Letterboxd. 
with the synopsis being the nefarious Dr. Fu Manchu searches for the keys to the tomb of Genghis Khan in order to fulfill a prophecy that will enable him to conquer the world. Now, I'm going to be honest. I was a bit apprehensive to check this out due to the four and a half hour long runtime. This is a serial that was being released weekly. Now, on the IMDb, it isn't showing as horror, but when I did a search on Letterboxd for all the horror films from 1940, this one popped up on there. So I decided, even though after watching this, I don't necessarily think this is horror, I'm still going to go ahead and include it on this Journey Through the Ot segment on here on this podcast. And I can kind of make an argument, a very loose one, that this is horror, but I personally don't really find it to be in that genre either. I feel like I should start this recap off stating that I really didn't know a whole lot about this character of Fu Manchu. Now, of course, I knew what the facial hair like cut was and learned that it got its name thanks to this character. It appears that it is based off of novels written by Romer as a criminal mastermind. And I'll get into that a little bit more, but I wanted to share this before getting into my recap of the movie. And I did find it interesting, though, that... The lore has it he created this character because he was using a Ouija board and that's where his fortune would come from and it supposedly spelled out Chinaman, which I do apologize for using that term, but that is horrible if that is really the true backstory as to how this character was created. Now, we get brought up to speed that Dr. Fu Manchu is a ruthless man who has studied the ancient ways of the Orient, but is a modern man. I also do want to apologize for using the term Orient because I do know that's somewhat offensive and but that is how the film relays it and I will give more kind of on my thoughts with some of the terms and things that are being used in this movie as we go on as well. But he is a modern man as well which I did think was kind of a cool thing which again I'll delve into here shortly. But he wants to take over Asia, which would put his plans for world domination into motion. In order to do so, he needs the scepter of Genghis Khan. There's a prophecy that whomever gets it in that year will unite the people of Asia together. And in order to discover its location, Fu Manchu is in Los Angeles as he needs three scrolls to figure out where the location is. Also in Los Angeles is Sir Dennis Nayland Smith, who is royal. He was just in Asia learning of the same prophecy and has been trying to stop Fu Manchu all along the way. Nalan attempts to see his friend Dr. Filnders Petrie, who is Olaf Hyten, where a member of Fu Manchu's Decot, Decoit, I'm not really sure how to say that, but it is a group of henchmen that he has where he pretty much lobotomizes them and they become faithful servants that do whatever he's told. Now they try to stop him and assassinate him at the doorway, but... They end up failing, and they also realize that Fu Manchu is there, and they're out to put a stop to him before he can obtain the information that he needs, and this will also lead them you know, to the scepter as well. Now, helping them is Alan Parker, who's portrayed by Robert Kellard. Their search leads them to Professor Edward Randolph, who is Tom Chatterton, and then as well to his daughter Mary, who is Luana Walters, as she is bringing one of the scrolls to Los Angeles, and this is actually one of the chapters that we get where they attack the train that she is on and Alan has to try to save her. Now this is a giant game of chess as Fu Manchu, his daughter Falo Sui, who is Gloria Franklin, as well as his henchman, the Ducoy, try to learn this information and steal the artifacts before their heroes can get to them. And at every turn they come face to face with Nalan, Alan, Dr. Petrie, and Mary as they do so. There is danger as well as each move leads to a counter move and every step of the way 
that they take them all over this city of LA and then even to Asia as they reach or they try to race to this scepter. Now, as I looked at the beginning of this, I did cut a lot of this out and really simplified this into that recap. To be honest, though, we get a lot of the same stuff in each chapter of this story. And then from chapter two on, we would get a cliffhanger where one of our heroes or a couple of them would be in peril. And you'd have to see how they would work to get out of it. What I do have to give credit here is that they don't really do any cheats where I know if you've ever seen Misery how that character there complains about when she went to see these type of movies in the theater that they would do that. So I'm going to give them mad credit there for actually, you know, just showing us a different angle or showing us more in depth into what actually went down there. And if I'm going to be honest, this would be probably more enjoyable to see weekly, but binging this over a few sittings got to be pretty rough because it got so repetitive. It's just so much of the same thing over and over again. And that's really just one of kind of the gripes that I have about watching this. But I don't want you to think that I completely hated this, though. As that is not the case, I knew that Fu Manchu was a character, but probably never realized who the character really is. As I'm watching this, I'm realizing that this is probably the basis of characters you'd see in, like, James Bond films and the books, along with the things that you see with, like, Dr. Evil does in Austin Powers. Now, this does translate, again, as borrowing from James Bond, as that's, you know, parody of those movies. But to my knowledge, a lot of this predates James Bond. The way these two characters talk are similar to Dr. Evil, and even some of the traps are eerily similar as well. But I know the leader of Spectre was very similar to this as well, as well as Inspector Gadget now that I'm thinking about it. And it wouldn't surprise me to learn that the Marvel villain of the Mandarin being based off this character as well. The villain itself is great in that it is taking the ways of the past and having someone who is versed in the present with education, which I thought was pretty cool. He's even using toxins and whatnot for mind control. And I also dig that his word is very important to him because I like that he is a villain, but he's also honorable in his own sort of way. Dr. Fu Manchu is a really good villain aside from the trope that probably got its start around the time where he talks too much, gives away his plans, and then ends up ruining it because of that. And there's so many times that I'm like, realistically, why wouldn't you just kill this character here and just be done with it? But obviously, if you do that, you can't proceed the story on anymore, and the villain would end up winning, which I would enjoy to an extent, but most people wouldn't, especially in 1940. Now, with my praise out of the way, I do have to point out the racism of the character as well. Personally, I don't care that we have a villain that's not white. There's nothing wrong with that in my opinion. And part of my issue though is that we have Henry Brandon, a white person, playing the character of Fu Manchu. An argument could be made that him playing the role is better to not hate the race, but that's not the result I'm sure of what happened. I did see this was discontinued, like this series of films and books, due to the racist portrayal of this character, including things like using the term Orient. I don't like giving the past that is 80 years old too much blame because it was more of the society, but we really haven't come that far with seeing with the protests that we have currently going on. I don't want to go all political, but just looking at this character, you can tell some of the things that are going a little bit too far with it, and I do know there were some issues that this had to be discontinued during World War II because this character is from China, and they end up becoming our allies, and... Americans do have this issue sometimes where when we make a character become like evil, we end up portraying it to the whole race, not just that character. And I mean, this is something that we do just in general for pretty much every color, but I just kind of wanted to bring that up here as something that I didn't really care for. Now, I had to say that I did have some slight issues with things becoming repetitive, as I've said. 
Every chapter really seems to follow the same formula with almost being its own contained story in a grand scheme of a much larger story. In general, I like what they're doing. I've studied Genghis Khan, so I like incorporating that this is not known where he was buried, which is actually true. I still think to this day we have no idea where his remains are. Needing to find all these different scrolls and artifacts to discover the location is cool to me. As I've said, though, the issue for me, though, is that makes our characters look dumb. As they will legitimately say things out loud and reveal it, our heroes will say these things pretty loud where they should realize that Fu Manchu has ways of learning things and hearing them, yet they still make the same mistakes over and over again. I get that it's a plot device to continue on the story, but it still doesn't make it where I'm going to give it too much of a pass. It just doesn't work that you'd think somebody like Nayland, who is part of Scotland Yard, who has been chasing him for years, would kind of gather that they need to kind of be a little bit more secretive, but I will digress there. That will take me to the acting, that even though I don't like that Brandon is not the correct race, I think he plays the villain well. I'll give him credit for being an early take on the character for historical purposes. His performance, I'd still rank ahead of others for sure of this, like, you know, super villain amongst these spy type things. Royal, Kellard, Hyten, and Walters are all solid as our heroes. We really get a lot of Nayland and Allen. More that this goes on, and they always seem to fall into some of the traps. They're fine in general, though. Franklin falls into the same boat for me as Brandon for not being the correct race, but I still can't continue to harp on that. It would have been nice to get more characters of color to be in this, but I did like that, that we get some of them here and there. And we also get a cameo by Dwight Fry, which he doesn't really do a whole lot, but I thought he was good. The rest of the performers, I would say, worked for what was needed at the times that they were. Moving this next to the effects of the movie, this is still pretty early in cinema. They really don't blow me away, but they did go practical. There were times where I could tell things weren't real, and we do get some good effects, though, mixed in with that. I know there's one point where we get an octopus that I think at first is real footage, but then when it's actually trying to attack somebody, it's not, and it's fake tentacles. I'll give them credit still for trying that. And I would say that I would give this an average score only because it has so many hits and misses, but they still took the time and effort, which gets it a pass. The last thing to go over would be the soundtrack here. For the most part, it is fine. They do well in picking selections that fit the mood of the scene. I do really have to give credit, though, to the drums. You know, this goes along with the film itself, is that supposedly there's these drums of Fu Manchu that are supposed to strike fear in the hearts of the uh, of his enemies. But on top of that, that is signifying that danger is coming, and it starts to ramp up. And this happens a lot at the end of chapters. I don't know how the character is able to hear it, but this is something that he does, and it plays with tension really well. And it got my anxiety going, so I'll give credit for that. Now, with that said, even though I was anxious about the runtime and it does drag at times, overall, this is pretty solid. It is an interesting look at an early villain that could influence things like books, movies, and comics going forward. There needs to be credit given there, and it does have some built-in racism as well that does hurt it for me, unfortunately. I do think that this goes on too long at times and just lessens the impact for me. The acting is good, despite my issues with certain actors in certain roles. The effects weren't great, but at least they tried. The soundtrack is effective with the drums that are used and the rest just fits. I would say that this is above average. Seeing a version where they trim stuff to make this into an actual feature length, even like two hours, would intrigue me to be honest. And I don't really want to go into a spoiler section for this as I don't really feel like it's a lot of repetitive stuff. And I kind of think I went over everything that I wanted to in general. 
And the only bit of trivia that I wanted to throw out here would be Republic Pictures planned to make a second Fu Manchu serial with Henry Brandon reprising the title role. The project was scrapped for diplomatic reasons after the U.S. allied with China when it entered World War II, and Brandon had never worked in the serial genre again. And then something I just kind of want to throw out here is why I could kind of throw this into horror here is that we do have the character of Fu Manchu who is trying to conquer the world which i mean i guess can be considered scary but he's using things like animals to kill people there's mind control so they're kind of becoming semi-zombies even only on a temporary basis we do have a lot of people getting killed in this which i was really shocked to see most of it is the ducoy or whatever those henchmen are getting killed quite a bit and i mean there's actually some even normal hero characters that are being killed off as well so i mean like i said not necessarily horror this actually falls more into like the action adventure type stuff but i mean with some of the things being used you could kind of alter it that way but i just kind of wanted to throw this little disclaimer here out as you know kind of my reasoning as you could include it here i guess so i don't know if i gave it to it but my rating here is a 6.5 out of 10 And what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
just to close everything out here, I want to thank you once again for listening to episode number 36 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Now that is my email address. If you would like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the previous episodes, those ones will be found at Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can find me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. Uh, any of those, if you want to go ahead and add me, I will definitely, you know, accept that on there. Just so that way you can kind of keep up on everything that I'm doing and everything that I will share here and there. Also want to get in touch with me through the FlickChat app. That is something you can download on iOS or on Android. And that join code for my section on there is journey with a cinephile all one word now for the last thing i want to ask real quick would be if you could whatever listening device you have this on or whatever podcatcher if you go ahead and subscribe so that way you never miss an episode and if it has the ability to rate or review if you go ahead and do that for me that would be greatly appreciated so for next episode, I believe that I'm going to finally watch on Shudder Blood Quantum, the zombie story that's on a Native American reservation in Canada. I kept hearing a lot of people talk about that, so I think I'm going to finally delve into that one. And then the other one that is going to be another Journey Through the Aughts episode is I'm going to move up to the 1950s to watch The Fall of the House of Usher. Since the only two that are left in 1940s, which I found another one, is ones that I've already seen before, so they're not going to be featured, but I will watch them in prep for the countdown list. And it was also looking at, I could only find four movies that are from 1950 that are horror, and three of those I am unable to find because they are foreign films and there's either no English subtitles to them or they just don't have any sort of release. So that's why I'm moving up to the 1950s and that's only one movie there. So that one's going to also be included, kind of like what I did for the 20s and 30s, is I'm going to combine the 40s and 50s into one list. And that'll be something that comes up, I believe, on probably episode number 40. But other than that, I just want to say whatever you do today, I hope you're safe doing it. I hope you have a great time as well. This is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off.